Welcome to our first Trinity Heights virtual service of September. Uh, my name is Tim Krieber. Uh, I'm one of the leaders of the church. And whether this is your first time uh, tuning in or you're a regular, uh, we just want to really welcome you uh, this morning. Uh, I hope this morning at Trinity Heights, uh, we can it, it can be a place uh, where we're all able to, to reground uh, ourselves despite everything that's going on and happening in our lives and that uh, this is a space where we have opportunity to connect uh, with God and have our perspective on on f the life of faith uh, encouraged and, and challenged in some way this morning. Um, I can't believe it's uh, already September, <clears throat> kind of marks the, the six month point when uh, COVID started to disrupt and impact all of our lives. Uh, typically at this time of year, we uh, we're welcoming back our returning students uh, from their summer activities and, uh, and their summers away and uh, and then enjoying getting to know new students that are uh, starting to move into New York City for school. Obviously, this year is a little different, um, but uh, I did want to take the opportunity just to, to give a shout out to, to all of our students who are tuning in um, as you're starting new semesters in whatever form that's taking. Uh, our, our prayers and our thoughts are, are with you guys, and uh, we're just glad that you can be with us this morning. Um, this is week six and the last week of our series on the theme of exile. Uh, it's been a whistle-stop uh, tour of the overall story of Israel's exile and then the incomplete return. And we probably could have spent months on this series, but my hope is uh, that we've brought to life over the last five or six weeks one of the pivotal stories of the Bible, not only helping us to make sense of what was uh, happening in the community of Israel back then, uh, but also connecting it to the broader story we all share in humanity's exile and the questions we all face about how to make sense of life when we're far from home. As we wrap up this series today, our final landing spot is the book of Nehemiah. And uh, just to add in a little uh, comic interlude, uh, I, uh, my mum just listened to, uh, to the sermon I did uh, a few weeks back in the second, second of this series on, on lament. And the feedback she gave me was that I was not smiling enough uh, I did point out it was a sermon series on lament, uh, but nonetheless, uh, I'm trying to put on a bit more of a positive upbeat this week uh, to to reflect the feedback I'm receiving from my family members. So, Mum, this smile is a shout out to you. But anyway, we digress. Now, uh, in my mind, Nehemiah doesn't doesn't get the airtime he deserves. Uh, the story contained within these pages of of, of this book show a character full of vision and courage, determined to overcome every obstacle uh, as he leads efforts to rebuild Jerusalem, the capital city that was destroyed all those years ago. I want to encourage you all to take some time this week uh, to give the story a read. I'm going to read different snippets uh, this morning uh, to reflect on three things that I thought about as I read uh, the book. Uh, but obviously this story is far more dynamic and richer than anything I can cover this morning. As a spoiler alert, here are the three points of reflection I want to explore. First, that we take inspiration 
from the vision and courage of Nehemiah. Second, that the work of rebuilding is accompanied by justice, but also the challenge and opposition. And third, that we should all take heed of humanity's tendency to return to old patterns of dysfunction and nationalism that limit our ability to fully return from exile. I'm going to revisit these points in a few minutes, uh, but let's first take a broader look at the overall story of Nehemiah to ground us all. Now, remember the big picture first. The nations of Israel and Judah have been captured by foreign military powers. Cities were destroyed and plundered. Many were killed. Survivors were either carried off back to those foreign lands or left in total destitution. Many years passed. The people of exile increasingly assimilated to their foreign lands. But then, as time passed and new kings emerged, bit by bit, a steady return from exile was permitted. Which is what we read about in the book of Ezra Nehemiah, which in our modern day Bibles is two separate books, but is believed to have originally been one book. This book uh, shows how first Zerubbabel led a group of returners to rebuild the temple. Then Ezra led a group, uh, the second group, largely to reestablish Judaism within the community. And then third comes the story of Nehemiah, who leads a group back with the objective of rebuilding the city. This book is written almost like the memoirs of, of Nehemiah. And uh, here up on the screen is the entire book, if you put it in a tiny font, on one page. Uh, so let's overlay the Cliff Notes version of the story on top of, on top of it, just to give you a feel of, of the, the, what the story's about. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king of Persia, and, and the, the story starts off uh, here, and at first blush, this doesn't sound like the best job who wants to be a cupbearer, but we shouldn't be mistaken uh, by that. This was a privileged position. Nehemiah found himself in the rel relative comfort of the royal palace in a prominent position. So the story goes that Nehemiah heard reports about the state of Jerusalem continuing to be in ruins. He found this deeply upsetting and asked the king, if he could go back and start to rebuild it. The king not only agrees, but he appoints Nehemiah as the governor and backs Nehemiah for this task with plenty of support and resources. So Nehemiah travels to Jerusalem. He rallies the community around the work of rebuilding and he sets to it. He faces regular intimidation from the rulers of surrounding tribes and nations who don't like the idea of Jerusalem being re-established. At each turn, Nehemiah faces this uh, adversity, but he doesn't succumb to it, and the work of the wall is finally completed. During this time, Nehemiah starts to uncover some of the broader injustice that is operating within the community, those in power taking advantage of others. There were various examples of this, but here's one. The Israelite community itself forcing each other into slavery and charging exorbitant interest rates. 
the powerful began to accumulate land and possessions. Sounds familiar. And when Nehemiah heard about this, he dealt with it quickly. Once the wall was completed, then we enter what feels like a very different section of the book, which becomes more focused on the reestablishment of the Israelite belief and society. Nehemiah, with Ezra, set about the renewal of the Israelite identity, religion and society. This starts with Ezra reading the book of the law, the people realising how far they had strayed from its words, and then the people committing to re-establishing those religious, social and economic practices that made Israel such a peculiar people. Then we read about what feels like a reallocation of the land, with Nehemiah leading the organisation around which family group was going to live where and have what land. And of course, in a largely agrarian and subsistence farming society, land was everything. And then we eventually get to the celebration and dedication of the wall, which is more symbolic of the celebration of the re-establishment of Jerusalem and the Israelite identity and way of life. It seems that all was right again, that people praised the God of heaven and followed the law of Moses. After this, Nehemiah at some point returns back to Susa in Persia for a period of time, presumably to fulfil his obligations as a governor on some sort of diplomatic trip back or report uh, to the king and to the central government. And when he returns to Jerusalem, he's devastated to find the people have gone back on the promises that they'd made. They'd stopped practising all those peculiar practices that made them distinct. The people have become unrecognisable from the nations around them once again. And that is the big anticlimax of the book. Nehemiah takes actions to address again these issues. But there is a sense of futility about it. So in summary, uh, this is the story of Nehemiah. So now let me briefly go back to the three areas I found myself reflecting on when I when I read the story. First, that we take inspiration from the vision and the courage of Nehemiah. Let me read a few select verses from the opening section of the book. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I was the cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face so why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This could be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What do you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, 
if it pleases the king. And if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Now, remember, Nehemiah was in a comfortable position, seemingly close to the king. He was likely born into exile. And as I read this, I'm struck by how he stirred with compassion when he hears the suffering of the people in the state of Jerusalem. Not just any old compassion, but one that seems to genuinely shake him to the core, where he weeps and mourns and fasts and prays. And then he has this conviction that he needs to go and do something about it. And he uses his position of relative privilege and influence, much like Esther does in her own story with the king. This took an incredible amount of courage. Courage to ask the king, courage to give up the comforts he had in the palace, courage to keep doggedly pursuing this vision as time and time again there were challenges. I read this and it, it stirs in me a desire to have that compassion, that vision, that conviction and that courage to act. Many of us live lives of extraordinary comfort, privilege and influence and how does what we read about Nehemiah challenge us? The second reflection I had was that rebuilding is always accompanied by justice and the restoration of justice, but also adversity. Uh, we're going to skip forward in the story to uh, chapter five now. So let me read a few verses from there. Although we, we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. This is some of the people giving a report to Nehemiah. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. And I said, as far as possible, we have brought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what, are you, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in fear of, the God, of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain but let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses, and also the usury you are charging them. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. 
And the people did as they had promised. This is, this is pretty radical stuff. Uh, Nehemiah chooses to confront the leaders of the community about the systemic injustice in their society. And as I read this, it's a good reminder that the work of rebuilding and restoring, the work of returning from exile must, by definition, involve the work of restoring justice. Now, I'm not advocating for an approach the same as Nehemiah. As we seek to follow Jesus, our vision for what restoring justice looks like needs to be informed by Jesus's life and death and resurrection, not Nehemiah's attempts to restore Jerusalem. However, we shouldn't ignore the power of what Nehemiah is doing here. It's profoundly economic and political shaped by a strong religious conviction. Areas of restoration that the modern church has sometimes struggled with and avoided. At Trinity Heights, we, we often talk about the calling we have as a Christian community to restore God's image in others and how that has implications at the personal, societal, political and economic spheres of life. And this vision of the restoration of God's image in humanity must involve restoring justice across all of those spheres. May Nehemiah's story act as a reminder and a challenge to us on this point. And just quickly to cover off on the ongoing adversity that Nehemiah faces, adversity from surrounding nations, adversity from his own people, setbacks. It's quite extraordinary what he has to deal with. It's a simple point to make, but for me, this was a powerful reminder that the work of restoration isn't easy or straightforward. Jesus shows us that resistance shouldn't be met with force, but with humility and submission. But I find Nehemiah's story encouraging in what we would expect, what we should expect, that we should expect adversity and embrace it, not avoid it. So what is your view on how restoring justice fits with the bigger theme of humanity's return from exile? And how do you respond to adversity in this regard? Okay, so on to the third reflection that I had as I was reading the story, and that is that we should all take heed of humanity's tendency to return to old patterns of dysfunction and nationalism that limit our ability to fully return from exile. Let me read to you from a few sections towards the end of the book of Nehemiah from chapters 10 and 13. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighbouring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand, all, of the, all these now join their brothers, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God. 
and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations and decrees of the Lord, our Lord. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage in other people to other peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. When neighbouring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. So the people make these promises and commitments. And then we read a little, little later. In those days, this is Nehemiah talking. In those days, I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who used to live in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women of Ashod, Ammon and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Now, this was an extraordinary series of events. Um, we see all the conviction, repentance, excitement, celebration, recommitment of the people to following the law of Moses that was read to them. And then in the examples I just read, blatant failure to keep these promises and the slipping back into the practices and the behaviours of the nations around them. It's also it's kind of comical and almost embarrassing to read, really, just the, the just the blatant 360 on what they had promised and committed to with such sincerity just a few chapters before. And my first reaction to this is, is to kind of chuckle and think how stupid and foolish the people were. Uh, but then as it sinks in and on further reflection, their behaviour starts to make me feel uncomfortable and disappointed because I realise that this is a this is symbolic of us all. So much of the biblical narrative is about God's call to his people to live a particular way that is set apart from and different from the pervading nations and cultures around us. Not for some totally arbitrary reason, but in order that the community of faith lives out and demonstrates to the world God's vision for humanity. To show what a restored community looks like and to call others to come and participate in it. Far from chuckling at the people in the story of Nehemiah, we start to realise, we start to relate to them because we recognise ourselves in their story. But as concerning as the people's return to their past practices is, so is the approach Nehemiah takes in dealing with it. And it is, it is at points like this in the story that we should question to what extent we agree. The struggle I have with Nehemiah through this story is to what end is his hard work of restoration? There's so much I admire about him his leadership and his courage. But behind it lies the belief 
that the end game, the end objective, is to restore a nation. Rebuilding and restoring a nation always comes with the commandeering of God. God is for us and justifies us and our behaviour. He's against all those other people who are not in our group. We will rebuild for our tribe's benefit and at the cost of others. And though and through the lens of the life of Jesus, we cannot agree with or take on this task of nation building. Part of our call to be a distinctive people as followers of Jesus is to resist this tendency to nationalism and tribalism. So I guess the question for all of us is, how do we relate to the blatant 360 swing on the promises and the convictions that the people had? And what does it mean for us to be part of rebuilding humanity, but not around a nationalistic or tribalistic vision, but around a vision of a true humanity that Jesus shows us? So these are my three initial reflections from reading the book of Nehemiah. But I, I want to encourage you again just to go and read it for yourself and uh, and and just really get into the the depth and complexity and drama of the story. Um, this concludes our series on the theme of exile. The story of exile is so important. Not only is it a great story full of amazing characters like Daniel, Esther, Ezra and Nehemiah, of disappointments and successes and epic battles and sieges. It's all of those things. But for anyone wanting to understand Jesus, what he said and why he was so radical, you really have to understand what preceded Jesus, the story of exile. Just as the book of Nehemiah ends, we're left with this deep disappointment, an unsatisfying end to the story. The people screwed up again. They're still in exile. They are still far from home. They're either breaking promises or chasing a vision of nationalism, trying to wrestle back God's favour to be for them and against others. And the communities of Israel that followed continued to wrestle with how to bring about a full return from exile, a full restoration. And as you can imagine, there were many competing points of view on how to achieve this, just like there is in our society today. It was in this context that Jesus was born and lived, died and was raised. And at Trinity Heights, we believe that in the person of Jesus, we're shown what it means to be truly human. We're given a new vision, one where the return from exile comes not by building a nation, not by power or force, not by religious cleansing, but by allowing Jesus to shape our humanity. Maybe, just maybe, that is humanity's way out of exile, if we dare to believe and to follow in the way of Jesus. Let us pray. 
Dear Jesus, we come before you this morning as a people dispersed across many places. And we read the ancient stories of exile and the incomplete return. And so much of it resonates with our experience. We lift ourselves up to you today and we ask that you would give us a fresh vision of what it means to be restored, to return from exile, and that you would give us the courage and the vision that we need to participate in that restoration. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond with this final song together. Well, thank you for joining us uh, for our service today. It was great to have you with us. Just a couple of important announcements. Firstly, uh, some of you may remember uh, many months ago now, probably four or five months ago uh, or more, we, we launched a benevolence fund, which was really an opportunity for the, our community to be able to um, provide for and meet the needs uh, of one another during this time. And uh, it's been really amazing over the last number of months just to see, uh, on the one hand, the generosity of different people in our community to give into that fund. Uh, and then on the other hand, just the way that it's it's been able to really be used to benefit 
and bless and encourage uh, different people within our community and, and within the broader New York community uh, who have uh, particular needs at this time uh, due to different circumstances. And uh, just wanted to encourage everybody uh, how it's a real uh, example of, of uh, uh, the community, the people of God uh, caring for one another and uh, just to encourage you to continue to participate in that, uh, whether that's giving into the fund if you're able or making us aware of different needs, either that you yourself have or, or those that you know um, in the community. Uh, secondly, wanted to just encourage those of you, obviously we're kind of in this virtual situation for a while longer. I guess none of us know how long, but uh, we're, st we're, still, we're still virtual. And um, just how important it is for us to stay connected as a, a community <clears throat> to continue to get to know one another, build friendships and also encourage one another in our in our faith. And um, so we have a number of different ways that you can plug in during the week and get to know folks, whether it's being part of a book club, a, a sermon series discussion group or, or a number of other things. So uh, if you're not part of one of those things uh, at the moment, uh, do do uh, reach out um, to find out more about how you could plug in. It's it's not a big uh, commitment, um, but it is, I think, very meaningful to participate in. And lastly, um, after the service, many of you know, we, we have like a virtual like coffee chat um, that you're welcome to join for us. As long or as little as you're able, it's a great way to meet other people who've been listening to the service. And um, the link to that Zoom uh, is an email you would have received from, from Trinity Heights uh, this morning. And if you haven't received that email, uh, you probably need to go and sign up for it on the, on the website. So um, we come to the end of, of, of this series on exile, this epic story uh, of exile and then the incomplete return. And we're, we're left asking the question, what does it mean for us as a, as a community orientated around Jesus? What does it mean for us to participate in humanity's return from exile? And I just want to encourage us this week to go out and to, to have vision and courage to bring about the restoration of humanity together. May you know God's blessing this week and know his peace. Thanks for joining.